Today, I have the incredible privilege of talking to Rob Walling, a pioneer in the SaaS universe. We're diving into the ins and outs of scaling SaaS businesses, the shifting landscape of software businesses in general, and how to run one of them, and the role of AI in SaaS projects in the present and the future. You will gain first-hand insights into Rob's famous stair-stepping approach and so many challenges owners face. We'll talk about competition, customer service, service requests, white labeling, and the essential role of networking and support systems for entrepreneurs. We even talk hiring. Oh, and we do talk about exits as well, which is great because this episode is sponsored by Acquire.com. And that's a place where SaaS founders can eventually sell their businesses for life-changing amounts of money. I will be talking more about that later. Now, get ready to harness the magical power of someone who not only listens to podcasts at 2x speed, but also seems to think and speak that fast. Here's my friend, Rob Walling. One of the most impactful things that you teach is the stair-step approach. And it starts with small bets on someone else's platform. Then you establish reliable revenue stream from all these offers. And then in step three, you build a standalone SaaS business. Now, is your podcaster, conference organizer, writer, and investor life the secret step four of the stair-step approach? You know, it's my step four. I find that each to each their own. Some people, their step four is launching another SaaS app. You know, you look at David Cancel, he's had, I believe, five exits. So I think his step, his step four is just rinse and repeat. Other folks become investors. And for me, it's this whole, the whole uh, ecosystem you just mentioned. Yeah, it's, you, you seem to diversify a little bit. <laughs> that's, that's what that is. So yeah. you're saying diversification is not the next step? Because I, I always feel like when I look at successful founders in the space, a lot of them, significant amount of them, and maybe this is just confirmation bias, they put themselves out there and they, they talk about stuff. They, they bring people together. But as you, as you said this just now, I'm like, yeah, okay. I, obviously, these are the only people I get to see in this space because everybody else is just doing their own thing. But let's talk about diversification a little bit, right? Like it, it feels like something that to many people is the reason they exit because they need to financially diversify. And for some people after an exit, they just want to do multiple things. So how long should you stay laser focused as a SaaS founder? Mm. I mean, who? that's an interesting question for me. I wanted to be as focused as possible until I had enough money in the bank that I never had to work again till I had a few money in the bank. I don't know that I would say everyone should do that, but kind of, I mean, if that's your life goal, like the moment you become not focused, like I am, for example, I do think you're less effective at each individual thing. And if you're driving, I mean, SAS is so draining, right? You and I both know this, like the amount of focus and time and energy it takes to grow it is a grind. Like even the best founders I know, even if they raise funding and even if they're on their second, third, fourth, they still, I talk to them and they're like, I forgot how hard this is. I forgot. It is so much harder. It is harder than podcasting. It is harder than, for me, running microconf. It's harder than writing a book. It's harder than running an accelerator, period. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I experienced the same thing with my little SaaS experiments that I do on the side just to even stay in the developer space because it's yep. so easy not to do this, right? Yep. It's so easy to talk and go on shows and communicate, which is still fun and has impact, just not the same thing. So it, it sounds like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the harder choice, but it's probably also a very rewarding choice still, right? Yeah. To run SaaS. Yeah, it's harder and it can be, it can get boring. It can become a grind where it's like, oh, I need to do this for five years in order to sell for 10 million. You know, I'm kind of making stuff up, but like 
if that is your goal, it's like you get two years in and you're like, boy, it really would be fun to start a new thing because that's fun. Isn't launching on Product Hunt and Hacker News really fun? It is. It's the dopamine. That would be way yeah, more right. fun than slogging day to day. But the slogging day to day, assuming you're making progress, actually can get you to that, you know, the, the goal. Again, I'm assuming your goal is, you know, multi-million dollar uh, uh, SaaS company with a multi-million dollar ex- exit. Yeah, and, and maybe it is not. Maybe it's just like being a, a reputable person in your community to get all kinds of opportunities beyond the, you know the SaaS mm-hmm. exit. I, I, I we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to audience building because I've I've read your book and I know you're not the biggest fan of that, or not necessarily the of the opinion that it needs to be a thing. But I, I still want to stick with stair stepping for a while because we we looked into this just uh, a couple of weeks ago as of of this recording, I think, and we we looked into the history of your your blog post around this, right? And this has been a around for now 10 years like you wrote this in in 2013 the the article that is very famous i guess in our community explaining the steps towards building a SaaS. is it still the same <laughs> is it still a way to build a SaaS, or has the environment changed Ooh, that's a good question so i will admit the original incarnation of the article and the original talk that i gave uh, at the dynamite circle of dcbkk event was not SaaS focused per se. I had to generalize it to, um, uh, it like step one was like launch a small product. Maybe it's, if it's, if it's software, then you do it, you know, with a single marketing approach, usually in an ecosystem. But I also included like a small e-commerce store, an info product, a course. And I think those are totally viable. Like if you're not a software person, maybe don't, maybe don't try to build software in the early days, you know? So I did go back maybe five, six years ago and I actually changed, I updated the blog post. And that's the beauty of it. Being a blog post was that I realized I wanted it, to, I wanted it really to be more focused on, on SaaS. But given your, uh, your question, which is have things changed? They've changed, but not in a way that I believe makes the stair step not work. Meaning I still see people doing it today. We have tiny C founders who um, are in the process of, of doing that. And then I talk to folks all the time, I'm going to be honest, who are on that step one. I, I mean, someone wrote, just wrote into the podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, and I was reading their question and they basically said, I have stair stepped over the last like two, three years. I know, he now has two products. One's doing like 5,200 a month and one's doing 3,000 a month. And he's like, I'm just like, he's on step two. He's just about to buy out his own time. And so do I still see it working? Yes. Yeah. Good to know. It's also good. It must be so, so much fun for you to be like the end of the funnel where people's journeys all meet, where people yeah. tell you about this. <laughs> so yep, seems to work. That's what, that's what keeps me going, man. Honestly, I have the, I have a, a label in Gmail just it's called thanks. And it's yeah. all the thanks that I get. And it, it means so much. I'm, you know what this feels like when people say you impacted their life. I mean, my mission, like the mission of my life and of MicroConf and TinySeed is to multiply the number of independent self-sustaining startups in the world. And you could replace SaaS or whatever. You know, you can focus on SaaS because that's really what I'm doing. But I'm just, I just want people to find their freedom, their purpose, and, their, you know, and have healthy relationships. I love that. Independent self-sustaining. I, I like this phrase because it kind of brings me to my next point. Platform risk. <laughs> Which, oh, yeah. You know, the opposite of independence and probably not very sustainable. Yep. Um, as the, the idea of stair-stepping is still a thing that's around, a lot of people start with building like a Shopify app or plugins for like WordPress or, you know, something. You build on somebody else's platform, which is extremely beneficial in terms of, you know, how the, the marketing and distribution works, but you are inviting a lot of risk into your business. Is that something that is harder now than it used to be? Like, there's also this kind of predatory thing that platforms occasionally do, where something that works really well all of a sudden ends up as a platform feature and is not a plugin anymore 
anymore. They kind of cannibalize their their developer base. Is that risk that is still something that people should just take? Yeah, I think so. And that's why, um, well, there's a couple things. Number one, some platforms are really bad at, you know, at, at cannibalizing their own uh, apps. So Shopify's terrible and Twitter is terrible and Meta really doesn't give a crap. They're not as bad as Twitter. But so know that going in if you're going to build on any of those. Um, most of the other ones are, are better at it, right? Salesforce, HubSpot. Uh, you know, what Zoho, Zendesk, Freshdesk, Intercom, like it's pretty rare you hear about someone, one of those ecosystems smoking someone, you know, who, mm. who, who's on them. Um, and the other thing is, I view the stair, the steps of the stair step as temporary stages, right? right? I was in step one and two for like a few years. That's it. And so am I willing, it's, it's risk tolerance, right? Am I willing to have some modicum of risk for those few years? Yes. Because by the time I get to standalone SaaS, I've, you know, then I'm starting to diversify. Now, we could then get into the conversation of doesn't every isn't every app have platform risk <laughs> to some extent? Yes, but to me, the risk of being on EC2 or the risk of sending through SendGrid or Twilio, of course, you have some platform risk, but it's a lot less than if mm-hmm. you're building an actual app in a in the Heroku or Shopify app store. Yeah, but if it's infrastructure, there are these other platforms that it's kind of Lindy effect. They've been around for a while. They probably will be around for a long time. And their business model is depending on retaining you as a customer. So that's fine. But that's, that's also a platform risk that I personally see a lot of people ignoring. Like they jump at new technologies, new frameworks, new, new whatever, right? Implement it into their business. And all of a sudden that part just falls away. It implodes and poof, they're standing there with a business that is just not sustainable because an integral part is missing. Open AI. Like that was, I, I was just reading yeah. on Twitter. Um, Josh Pickford was talking about like his experience w- uh, with uh, Bearmetrics when Stripe implemented their own analytics back in the day and how it hit Bearmetrics, even though people came back and figured out, oh yeah, actually Bearmetrics is the much more in-depth analytics tool. And OpenAI has done this with PDF introspection at this point, right? Lots of PDF startups are now in the balance and it feels this stuff just happens much more quickly now. Like you're around for like a month and all of a sudden all your, your feature set is copied by the platform. Is, is that just a perception thing or is it just a reality of building SaaS? I think it's a it's it's the edge cases that we hear about because mm-hmm. we're on Twitter and because OpenAI specifically is moving very very fast. Like AI, well, you know, when was the big reveal? Was it less than a year ago? Like it's it it's like a couple yeah, months. It's ago. moving way fast. So uh, AI, I could, I mean, I've been saying like Chat GPT wrappers for the last nine months. You're gonna get mowed over. Get the money while you can because mm-hmm. anything you do is going to be steamrolled by a bigger player that's that's been pretty obvious versus you know again if we start running through uh heroku atlassian cloudflare aws google cloud microsoft azure you know these all have app stores like are they steamrolling their apps as fast no they're not and the the josh i mean josh pickford with barometrics i mean that was something that he he knew that was coming. Like I had talked to him within six months of him building Bear Metrics in what was it 2012, maybe 2013, and we were at a microconf, and I was like, "Dude, you know Stripe's going to build this eventually." No, it took Stripe a lot longer to build it than I thought. I figured they'd build it in the next year or two, and it took ages, you know. But um, yeah, it's a it's a risk we all have for sure. I think the more the further I got along in my entrepreneurial journey, the more I wanted to um, have fewer of those risks, and that's what stair stepping attempts to do. And at a certain point, my de-risking was much like yours. I I was running drip. I was not diversified. I had millions upon millions of dollars tied up in this asset. And my de-risking was to turn it into cash. And yeah. that now that's de-risked, right? But then now I have right. it in, now I have it in some stocks and some metals and some cryptos. So there's you know that's its own platform risk in a way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the Beatles record. Don't forget that. And the gold <laughs> record. Abbey Road, baby. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. And I think de-risking is, is generally a, a, the thing that most people want, like in economic times such as this in particular, right? Like you, you want to make sure that there's a, there's a, a fallback or like an alternative. And I think AI is the topic where this is extremely hard. AI, like building business on top of AI, right? Uh, I would like to, to hear like how nuanced you think about building on top of AI, like building on top of OpenAI as a platform and using AI as a feature in your existing non-AI based startup. Mm-hmm. Like what's the difference there in terms of risk and mm-hmm. reward, I guess? Yeah, I like that. And there's a third actually, right? Mm-hmm. It's to use OpenAI or ChatGPT to just to make your internal processes better. Mm. Like I'm doing cold yeah. outreach, I'm gonna personal rest. So there's actually three different things. The third one that I just mentioned is pretty low risk, I think, because let's say I'm doing cold outreach and I'm using chat GPT. I mean, what's the worst? They raise the price, they kick me off, and now I have to go back to the, you know what I mean? The risk, it's not existential. It's just like, well, that, that kind of sucks. Um, obviously building a, a chat GPT wrapper or building on chat GPT, yes, there's platform risk. Um, the big thing that I think a lot of people... I think misunderstand is if you build a wrapper and you do the the obvious things, which is like chat with a PDF, chat with a CSV, you know, import a CSV and and have have clean up the data or whatever. These are obvious and they are going to get built by ChatGPT or by just a bigger player, like by a Salesforce or by a Google, you know, a Go- like Google Docs or something is going to build a CSV importer that can, right? Any of these things is going to get done. And so don't be shocked when that happens. If you can make a bunch of money in the meantime, it's opportunistic. And if you can make 20 grand a month for or 50 grand a month for a year until they build it, just be like, hey, don't, don't count on that being valuable. Count on that cash in, in hand, right? That's what I think about building on top. Now, there are some exceptions. I think in general, people who build on top of, uh, of OpenAI, the you're either going to have a tiny little niche product that no one notices and you're away in a corner, much like the start small, stay small approach, uh, where you just don't get noticed, or it's going to be the big funded competitors that are going to come in and just stomp on you. You know, like the, again, like a Google Sheets or just some, some big player that, that does it. I feel, so, so that's, I guess what I'm saying is, yes, there is risk there building on top of AI because it is changing so quickly. Think about, remember when Facebook apps and games were all the rage oh, yeah. and there was farmville and yeah. i forget what the company was but they had a bunch and and man the valuations and everything went up and it was obvious this was not going to last but they went in and you know and they made a i think they made a ton of money they either they raised a bunch of money but it wasn't going to last this is the same thing with these ai kind of ai rappers look let's just let's be honest it's not gonna last that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it just know that this is not a 10-year business yeah that's that's a funny one, like the Farmwell situation. I think it was Zynga, the, Zynga. the company. That's who it was. Yep. I remember back in like 2012, I was in San Francisco, and the Zynga building was this massive building, like towering over the Adobe building right next yep. to it. And then a couple of years later, right, everything just imploded. Gone. Tells you to not over-index. Same thing happened three years, four years earlier with iOS apps. Mm-hmm. Remember when the App Store started? Mm-hmm. Same exact thing happened. There was a huge gold rush. Yeah, so it was Facebook apps. There was a time when it was Twitter apps, although it was never that big, a bunch of Twitter clients. Uh, a crypto Web3 was one of those. AI is another. And so look, these are all waves. And if you catch them and you hit them at the right time and you exit or you, you know, make a bunch of cash on it, great. But if it is, again, this is not a five or 10-year business in the way we're talking about it. You need to be a, a different... The durable competitive advantages of just having a SaaS still apply. AI can augment that, but AI is not itself an advantage because any of us can use it. That's a good point. And if if you have an an AI based business where you know that like your days are numbered, right? Does it make that 
less or more sellable because I I could mm-hmm. imagine that somebody, a bigger player that wants to integrate that functionality into a much bigger suite of products would find that interesting, like uh, as a strategic acquisition kind of, not a financial one. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think about like the, the sellability of these short-term, intentionally short-term businesses? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, revenue buyers, whether it's micro PE or just people buying through QuietLight, FE and, and Acquire.com, um, they will discount it heavily. They know the risk involved. So if you're truly selling on a multiple of net profit or whatever, you're not going to get great multiples because the risk is huge. If you get lucky, extremely lucky, and you find a strategic or a strategic finds you, yes, you're right. You could probably get aqua hired. I mean, I'm thinking of something doing 20 grand, 50 grand a month. You know, this is not a $10 million exit, but will someone give you you know, half a million or a million bucks and then some stock and this and that. I totally think that's feasible. Um, I just think it's going to be the one in a hundred or one in, a, you know, one in 500. <laughs> Funny. It's kind of VC odds for bootstrap businesses once again, right? It feels a bit like it. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, I guess. I, I've seen a trend in, in these AI centric um, startups. A lot of them, they kind of stop using the subscription revenue model and they go a lot of they front load a lot of their payments. They do like mm. one-time payments yep. or like yearly things, knowing that there will be around for less than a year. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a bit creepy in a way, but that's that's how it works. Um, is there is is that just because these things are time limited, or is there also this overall subscription fatigue that that exists or purportedly ex- exists somewhere in the world? Yeah, huh. I I think that. Um, there are certain tools and and tasks that really shouldn't be subscription. You know, just because SaaS is the best business model ever doesn't mean everything should be SaaS. And, you know, I don't know if you saw, was it BMW that where, <laughs> where the heating? Yeah, where you, you they had the hardware in your car, but you had to pay a subscription in order for them to enable it. And people were so mad that they just stopped because it just shouldn't be SaaS. It feels like you're ripping it off. And same thing, like to chat with a PDF, for example, I know I keep coming back to that, but like that's an example. Or to, let's say I want to convert Dirty data to clean data, right? Or I want to convert an MP3 to a wave, or I want to. You know, the, these are like one-time things. Unless I'm an editor and I'm doing this on a weekly basis, like it really should just be a one-time charge, right? And so when you try to force one time into subscription, that's when you see this really high churn. And so I don't know. I I I think people say subscription fatigue, and when I look at you know the tiny C dashboard with a, almost 150 companies in it now. I'm not seeing subscription fatigue in those areas <laughs> because oh, that's I'm, interesting. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like I'm just up uh, up into the right as a general rule. It's not everybody, yeah. but I mean, SaaS is still very much alive. Is that like B two B SaaS that, yeah. that you're looking at almost exclusively? Yeah, okay, pretty much. Yeah, B two C. There's fatigue, dude. I cannot believe. I think it's like Hulu Plus with no ads is like eighteen dollars. I'm like, no. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not. I'm like one of the least price sensitive people you'll meet with it because I yeah. just want stuff to just go. And when they, I was like eighteen, I don't watch enough on Hulu, so I, I actually canceled that subscription. So yes, on the on the B 2 C side, which is something I don't like to plan for exactly this reason, I definitely think there's subscription fatigue. I hear people talking about it all the time. <laughs> this has nothing to do with with SaaS, but do you think there's going to be a consolidation alongside the streaming stuff? Like we we had it in the beginning, then it yeah. kind of split up now. Will it reconsolidate? Yeah, I think because now, so yeah, in the beginning it was um, land grab as many subscribers as possible, and then you we we saw in the last six months price increases. Everybody's doing increases, and it, all this are because I'm, I'm on Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and HBO and Disney Plus and <laughs> P, I'm on Peacock right now because I like uh, Poker Face. You know, there's like two shows that I like. Um, 
And yeah, then the next phase will be consolidation. This happened with TV networks. You know how there were like three in the US? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it was ABC, NBC, CBS. But at one point, there were a kajillion of them and they consolidated. Same thing with radio networks. Same thing with car makers. Like how many American car manufacturers are there now? Uh, let's put Tesla aside, but it's basically uh, Ford and GM. It has been for years. And there were Chrysler at one point and then Tesla came up. But there were like 100 or 200 in the 1920s and 30s and then they consolidated. So it'll be the same thing with streaming. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, hopefully, because I cannot handle more. I mean, I, no. I can handle a subscription. I, I just said there's still a logistical overhead of yeah. even understanding where a show is. Because that also changes over time, right? Don't want to dive too much into TV, yes. but I, I'm a Star Trek nerd. I want to watch Star Trek. Where yeah. is it now? Paramount Plus? Is it on Netflix? Like, where do I go? So here's for my, my secret. For my nerd stuff. I am in this. I have this app on my phone. I have this app on my iPad. It's justwatch.com. You ever gone there? Just watch. Type in a series. It'll tell you where it is. And it'll tell you, you you can stream it for free or you can buy it or rent it. I, I'm in that twice a day or twice. Wow. I shouldn't say twice a day. Twice a week trying to find shows. Is that a bootstrap business? That sounds like uh, you know, I, don't, could, could I have one. no idea. I don't know. I, it was one of the, it's one of those B2C things that kind of it would be fun to own yeah. that. But I bet it's a nightmare keeping up with all the changing <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah, you need a lot of people like really at, at the pulse of what's going to happen yep. in these these uh, broadcasting services and stuff. That's fun. Yeah, but let's let's maybe get back to SaaS. Let's let's get back to product market fit, which is one of the the most central things that you talk about in your book. And I like that this is the first thing you talk about, mm-hmm. like in, in in terms of chapters. There's teams later, and there's pricing later, and all that stuff. But product market fit is one of the biggest things. And as I read the book. I, I I agreed with a lot of stuff, obviously from from my own experience. But I found one thing that I really want you to dive in a little bit more. You you talk about competing on on three different potential levels. You say competing on price is a thing you can do, competing on sales model, and competing on product. Now. Price and product, I understand. I can be cheaper. I can build a better, different, more diversified product. But sales model was something that I found really interesting. And we already kind of touched upon it just now, so which is why I want to bring it back mm-hmm. in. How can you compete on sales model with bigger, different, richer, more capitalized mm-hmm. players in your market? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so what you have to find is company, a company or companies where the standard sales model is a pain in the ass for customers and they don't like it, but they've been forced to do it because there's a monopoly or an oligopoly, right? So Salesforce, have you ever tried to buy a Salesforce subscription? It is terrible. Never, never do that. And it, because you have to, you just, they will not even talk to you unless you jump on a call with them and they do this demo. I remember I was just like, how, how much is it? How much is it? And they wouldn't tell me. How much is it? They just wouldn't tell me. They were going to force me to do a freaking, you know, Zoom call. That sucks, man. So isn't there opportunity that, to disrupt that? Anytime there is friction or there is something that customers don't like, sometimes it's like price. Oh my gosh, there's way too expensive. The cheapest version of this thing, marketing automation, is the one that comes to mind, of course, because I compete in that space. The cheapest version of marketing automation was like $400 a month when we started Drip. And it was obvious it didn't need to be $400 a month. It was that much because their margins were huge and their sales model was very time intensive. And we were like, if we build self-serve, I know we can charge less. And make it self-serve. No one else was self-serve. Infusionsoft, Marketo, Pardot, Silverpop, like they all wanted you to do a demo and do the big sales grind. And look, that's great. And you can make a lot of money doing that. I'm not disparaging that. But I am saying there's where there is a, a dissatisfaction, where you're making folks jump, jump through hoops and there is friction, there is opportunity to compete. And that's really what I mean by sales model. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would you say this kind of switching up the sales model is a moat? for you at that point? I don't think so. I think moats are durable. You know, like moat is like, once you have a brand, 
where you are one of the two or three in a conversation where it's like, oh, what are the, uh, what are the, like, the really good marketing automation providers? Oh, it's like the most popular active campaign Infusionsoft and Drip. Like that, at a certain point, that became the conversation. Once we had that, that's kind of a moat, unless we screw it up by having the founder leave and then raising your prices so much that you piss everybody off. But, you know, that's just a hypothetical. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so I, so I don't, so sales model, someone else can just, do the same thing. And it's, it's kind of like competing on features that it's like false moat. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a temporary moat or a, a false may not be the right word, but like a temporary moat because they can just build the features or they can just change the sales model. Yeah, that's that's something that I really liked uh, when you said like about translating the the interface, that kind of stuff. That's also something that doesn't really it's not durable. I like the the phrase of durable modes. I think white labeling was a thing that surprised me because I I mentor a couple uh, software businesses and one of them has been thinking about white labeling their their product. So they they are in the in the SEO space and you know they think of how using their product, giving it to other agencies and mm-hmm. and. Uh, having them use it or offer it to even their, their customers and clients. And you say that's not a good idea. Why is that not a good idea? Yeah, we've switched, just for listeners, we've switched from moats to common mistakes that I see yes. people make, right? Like yes. translating your app too early. People, I'm at 5K MRR, I've topped up my market. Now I'm going to translate to Spanish, German, French, and it's like, don't, don't do that. It's a waste of time. So to your point, um, white labeling, here's the thing. It's white labeling too early. Oftentimes you will launch and you'll get to five to 10 K MRR and you're just starting to build, build a good business. And this happened to us where I got five requests in the first few months of people saying, I really want to like take drip and white label it and then sell it to realtors, or I want to sell it to mortgage brokers, or I want to sell it to, you know, insert another vertical here. And it's super appealing to be like, well, this person will do the sales and like, we'll get customers without even trying, you know, it's all that stuff. But the problem is, is most people, uh, they're wasting your time. Like unless they have, unless it's a big company and you know that they are bringing the thunder, meaning they have a lot of customers that they can sell it to, you're going to spend a bunch of time hashing out legalese, signing docs for someone who's going to sell two copies of it. You know, it's like that, that's usually the issue. Now, if I was doing seven figures ARR and I saw it as an actual channel to where, it, as you saying, agencies could, um, you know, could could reuse it and white label it. I've seen some folks do that. I, I don't think it's the end of the world, but it's not. It wouldn't be my first choice of marketing approaches. It's 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 one of many, and I think the siren song uh, of it is dangerous, especially when you're early, because you just don't have the amount of code you have to write and the amount of legal contracts you have to go through and sign. It is significant to enable white labeling. So make sure that if someone is going to do it, that they pony up upfront. Like I want a minimum commit of, you know, fifty grand upfront or a hundred grand yeah. a year. There's some number, and if they can't or won't do that, then they aren't committed to it. Why would you commit all this time and money yeah. to it? That makes sense. Somebody should build this white labeling as a service business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Another little meta layer on top of that. But yeah, I think like sharing development cost, great idea, and I mm-hmm. think generally a good idea for sizable customer feature requests, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep, it's pretty common. Yeah, I see folks do it. More common than than folks might think. So, let's let's keep in in this wheelhouse here with the the customer feature requests because that's also something that you have uh very strong opinions on, right? Like when to say no pretty much to them. So, how do we deal with all these things that constantly flood us? A lot of uh, small SaaS businesses have this I, I don't know if it's a user voice or some widget where people can put up their their ideas and they're just inundated with all these requests that people want. Wh- why should we listen? What should we listen to and where should we just say no? Yeah, I mean, you know this. It it's hard and it's hard 
harder in the early days because the more mature your product gets and the more revenue you have, the more kind of your vision of what your product is solidifies. And eventually you're kind of like making tweaks, you know, you're, when you're, by the time you're, your software is a teenager, meaning let's say 50K a month, 100K a month, you know, you're, it's like, oh, I kind of know what this is. Now we might make a strategic decision to add an entirely new aspect to it. But unless we do that, we kind of know that if we're an email service provider, I'm not going to add affiliate management. That's a whole other category of stuff. You know what I mean? You just, you just kind of get there. But in the early days, man, it is so hard, especially if you're still trying to, to build something people want. You know, you, you haven't done that yet. And so every feature request that comes in, you think to yourself, oh, if I build this, will this get me closer to product market fit? Like that's the real kind of crux of it. And so I feel like there, there's some feature requests that come in that are just obvious no's. And then there's some that are obvious yeses. Like, hell yes, why didn't I think of that? Or it's already on the roadmap, right? Unfortunately, yeses and no's are maybe, I don't know, what do you think, 20, 30%? It, it's mm-hmm. the minority, 40%. You know, it's some number that's not, not the majority. The majority are ones that you kind of have to agonize over. And usually what I would do is ask myself, all right, what's my vision for the product today? And do I feel good about that vision or do I need to alter that vision? Because if I implement this, it means it's a different thing, right? So I'd kind of run it through my founder gut. I would also, um, I know some people, I never did this, but they have like customer advisory boards where you have, it depends on how far along you are, but it's like, who are my best customers? Who are the customers who stick around for a long time, give us a lot of good feedback, whatever. And I used to just kind of email. I would email like Brennan Dunn, right? Or, or Ruben Gomez or Jeff Epstein, uh, founder of Ambassador, you know? Um, there were a handful of people who were like my friends and I was like, what do you think about building this? What do you, you know, would you use this? And have you seen this in other tools? You know, kind of get a sanity check on it. Um, but the bottom line is you have to say no to the vast majority, right? By the time I left Drip in 2018, I believe we were getting 175 feature requests a month and that 150, 175, that was from sales, support, success, and uh, directly from customers. And you have to say no to 90 plus percent of those. And so figuring out a way to filter those is, um, is kind of what I try to talk through in the book. It's, it's hard, right? There's no direct to say, I can't tell you yes or no, but it's like, here's the mental framework of, of how I would think through it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's also kind of like a, an identity thing for a lot of founders, right? They, they want everything to appeal to their customers. They want the, the prospects that are out there that don't yet use the product to, be, to every single one of them to feel like this is for them, which is obviously folly in so many ways. But yeah. it, on, on another level, there's, there's also a problem. Like once you have this advisory board or you have customers that you talk to, how do you avoid this? typical, you know, Rob Fitzpatrick mom test problem of people just wanting to to encourage you because they really like you. They really like that you're building this for them and they say yes to everything. How yeah. do you get out of that? I never had that. I don't know because I never if if usually I would say here's our current roadmap. Here then it is again a private conversation. So like here's the next five things we're building. We got a request for this. Do you think I should bump any of these? Because then there is it's not just yes. They can't just say yes. They have to bump something else, right? So they have some loss. Now you can also, I mean, there's dangers to this. You can get in an echo chamber. If you only have three in your customer advisory board and they're all the same use case and you have other use cases you need to support, you know, you need to get some more diverse thought in your advisory board. But y- you get the idea. It's it's helpful. I mean, to me, the advisory board or any of the, these are all just signals. I have my founder gut. I have the category that we're currently in that I define us as. I have my vision for the product. I have an advisory board. These are all just signals. None of them makes the decision. You have to put it in a stew and making, being a founder is making hard decisions with incomplete information. This is a great example of that. You will never, at best, you'll be like 50% certain you need to build something, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it sure sounds uh, like the regular founder life. Quite, yep. quite anxiety inducing. And that, maybe that's also one thing from my own personal experience, having like a couple mental health issues along the way. Uh, do you think just being a founder is just has to be stressful? <laughs> you know, yes and no. <laughs> so it depends. So these days, I am not, I'm a founder of MicroConf and a tiny seed. Now, I'm not a SaaS founder these days, but I do run companies. They are startups with teams of people, and we are doing big stakes, high stakes things that are, that impact a lot of people and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and I'm not stressed. And I used to be stressed all the time. And so I think that's where I say yes and no. I think in the early days, most of us are not equipped mm -hmm. to deal with the uncertainty. And that's a huge part of being a founder is, you know, our decisions, incomplete information. Everything is uncertain, especially in the early days. Mm -hmm. I think certain people are either naturally or perhaps there's nature or nurture. Like, did their parents teach them better coping skills? Because I didn't have any. I'm like a high anxiety person and I had no coping skills to deal with uncertainty. So for folks like us, it's just stress, 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 burnout. Um, I do know some folks who are better equipped at dealing with it and who actually take a grain of salt. Like, I'm launching this startup and realistically, this is not that bad. Like, I'm not digging a ditch somewhere and if it goes under, I can go get a job. You know, for me, I was like, if it fails, the end of the world as we know it. So I'm a catastrophizer, right? So I think the more, so much of it is mindset. Like, the actual risk to us as founders is pretty, it's not a lot. The actual risk is usually minimal unless you make dumb decisions like putting money on credit cards and such, which is something I never did. Do you, do you ever do fear setting as like a conscious exercise with where could this go wrong and would I still be fine? Yeah, what's the worst that could happen is the phrase that I use. What is the worst that could happen if this, when we were starting Tiny Seed, um, we were struggling to figure out what the what the terms should be, right? Because it's like, well, we're not VC, but we don't want to do the revenue-based financing. How do we be in your, you know, in your court for the long terms, long term and have terms that are both investors agree to invest in and that will give a return such that the fund can continue and not implode and the founders will agree to. And that was a very, very difficult, it's kind of like setting pricing. It's just hard, right? Because you don't know what the answer is. And there were some major setbacks where we were screwing around. We had like six different versions of our terms and I was running them by founders and someone told me, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I just wouldn't take that money. And here's why. And it was devastating to me. And I remember I was like, oh, this is it's never going to work. We're, we just can't do this. You know, I got super catastrophizing. And Anar was like, dude, we're smart. We'll figure this out. You know, that's mm -hmm. my co-founder. And that helped me. That helped me level set of like, the, and then he said, what is the worst that can happen if we don't figure this out? We just don't do it. Mm -hmm. And, and you, <laughs> and so you go back to being retired, right? I came out of retirement yeah. to do this. Yeah. Like, oh, so I go back to playing my guitar. I guess that is the worst case. That's not a bad yeah. worst case, you know? Yeah. Th that's why I said like step four of the stair-stepping approach, yeah. because you already had all these other things figured out, right? You were in yeah. this kind of post-economic situation already. Yeah. You didn't have to think about where the next like uh, mortgage check is going to come from. That's right. It helps. Yeah. It helps yeah, a lot. For sure. Well, most founders are unfortunately not in that position, right? And a lot of founders too, you, you said we a lot, which is something I really noticed here because my experience in, in many things before I co-founded Feedback Panda with Danielle was it was just I. It was just me all the time. And I kind of, in retrospect, I was almost in a constant solo founder funk. 
kind of felt like it. Like a lot of looping thoughts, a lot of just spiraling all the time. And I was talking to Dickie Bush on this podcast a couple of weeks ago about how writers have the exact same problem, right? There's, there's a, a surprising similarity between writers whose product is good writing to appeal to people and impact their lives and SaaS founders, solo developers who, whose product also is writing just you know code for machines not for people and they also just don't know is it gonna work is this whole thing gonna work how do you get out of this this kind of solo founder funk do you have any ideas yeah i do so there's a few opportunities or a few options one is obviously to get a co-founder but that's a that's a big that's a big decision um masterminds mastermind groups were hugely impactful for me and have been i mean i've been talking i started this mastermind in 2010, I believe. And it's gone through a bunch of iterations and it, it was four of us, then three, then now it's just two of us. And it's been two of us once a month since 2010 now, 13 years. Wow. I mean, just with this one other guy and we talk once a month. Now we do it in VR fishing. We, we don't even get in zoo. <laughs> oh, we awesome. literally get in VR, we fish <laughs> and we talk about, you know, startup stuff. Um, masterminds are huge. I used to be in two masterminds because I wanted every, you know, and they were every other week. So I pretty much every week I had someone to talk to. Oh, that was cool. such a big deal. I think that's the best way. The other thing, of course, is to join a community, you get a little less of that, but you know, a microconf connect, or if you wind up getting into tiny seed or whatever, the dynamite circle, you know, there's all these, uh, indie hackers, right? There's online communities. There's, it's less per interpersonal, I think, you know, than, than masterminds. Um, that's probably my number. That's probably my number one, to be honest. And then, of course, I mean, the other one too is going to in-person events. Like, I wind up going to a lot of microconfs, of course, because I host mm -hmm. many of them, yeah. and I'm fired up when I come back, you know. And it, it, I think that 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 can be motivational for folks as well. Yeah, that that was a, a big learning for me as well. Like the, the in-person events in particular, that was something. Where, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm doing all right, right? Everybody else is constantly just gnawing their their yeah. the nails over their own businesses and that kind of stuff. It's perfectly fine. And in in commiseration, there's a lot of elation, right? You find find a way through masterminds. That's a thing that for most of my life I had no idea about. Mm -hmm. So it, it is very important to understand that this is a feasible way to connect with people on your level, on your journey too, right? Yeah. And you facilitate them, right? In, in the community? Yeah, we do matching with microconf. Um, that was something I resisted for a long time because I kept, so we would get people say, how do I join a mastermind? And I'm like, go to microconf and find somebody, you know? And it's just like, <laughs> eventually producer Xander was like, I think we should start matching people. And I'm like, but what if we get it wrong? But what if, but what, if? you know, that was the, and it's like, let's just try it. Let's try it with get, get 50 people to apply, match them up and see how it goes. And it's been, it's been one of our most, aside from in-person events, it is the most successful offering we've ever offered at microconf. And so we match uh, it depends. Uh, yeah, it's like two hundred fifty dollars up to two thousand. It's a one-time fee right now. Although we're talking about going subscription and actually facilitating mm. right mm -hmm. now, it's just a one-time match, and um, depends on your revenue level. And then I think we guarantee it for a year. Like if if yours falls apart, you know you can get rematched. But wildly successful. We've matched. Is it close to a thousand? I think that's the number. Eight hundred or a thousand. Uh, you know, founders with one another collective MRR of, or ARR of, you know, 150 million or some huge number across 30 or 40 countries. So awesome. that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. What's the churn and retention metrics on that stuff? I know. <laughs> do, do you track that? Since it's not, it's not subscription, right? It's one time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like the, on, on, the, on the community or like the little groups of people themselves, like do they, oh, retain, do, are they, do they, they sustain? Yeah. 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 Surprisingly high number. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that I know the exact numbers, but it's like the, the vast majority I'd say that at, at a minimum, the majority, which is only 51%, I think like the super majority wind up, uh, I guess it depends on what time frame we're looking at, right? You're talking mm -hmm. six months or six years, mm -hmm. you know, there's yeah. only a handful. It's going to be kind of a, I think a bell curve or a, you know, a, a kind of a degrading curve over time of people um, yeah. 
who, who stop. Yeah, because people probably also graduate from certain groups of people into new ones, right? As their That's as right. their business improves as well. Sometimes well, you don't grow it. Yeah, I I, cer- I certainly love the fact that you're facilitating like actual relationships between people, and that kind of brings me to the point that I I said I want to get back to, which is audience building and you know be building in public, doing stuff like in front of people. In your book, you say, and I think you're right, that for many founders, it's not a necessity. For many SaaS businesses, building in public or building an audience. It's a nice to have, but you don't need that necessarily to build a business that serves people and solves their problem. But it could. And I think where you mentioned that building an audience is actually useful is in hiring. I found that really interesting too. So are you, are you still like pro or are you like against building an audience? What, what's the, the nuance there? I want to know. So the, I'm glad you asked because there is nuance. I'm not pro or against what I am. Uh, I am opinionated about it because I almost every week I see a tweet of like steps to build a business, build an audience, then ask them what they want and then build a product. And it's like, great. And I always chime in great for info products, not for SaaS, (laughs) not for B2B SaaS specifically, right? right? If you are marketing, if your audience, if you are marketing to other indie hackers, guess where indie hackers are? They're on Twitter. So yeah, go hashtag build in public and sell them your chat with PDF thing or whatever it is. That's great. But the vast, vast, vast majority of companies, in fact, Tiny Seed, we funded 131 companies, actually almost 150. Uh, uh, as of a couple weeks from now, it'll be over 150. But uh, like I did, I ran the numbers and it was like 4% or 4.5% had any kind of audience. I mean, any type of social, podcast, YouTube, anything before they built their businesses. And similar numbers even now, like where we have a lot of companies doing seven figures and we've had exits and we've all, and they just, they just don't need it. Right. Because SEO content, cold outreach, integrations, uh, in-person events, affiliate program, you know, all this other stuff can be done without an audience. So my thing is audience, I've, you and I've both built audiences. I've been building audiences since 2005 when I started blogging, 2010 when I started the podcast, you know, 20, whatever, when we started the YouTube channel, it's, a fuck ton of work. It's way more work, <laughs> way more work for the reward than SEO or cold outreach or, you know, these other like staple B2B marketing purchases. That's what I see. If you're gifted at it or if it's what you need to do, Arvid, people like you and I, I had to do that. I was blogging to no one for like a year. I was right. podcasting to no one for yeah. like a year, right? You and I do it because we have to. It's part mm-hmm. of like Stephen King at one point, he said, uh, he told a reporter, he said, yeah, I'm going to retire from publishing. And this was years ago. And the guy said, oh, you're going to stop writing? And he said, no, I'm <laughs> retiring from public. Like the dude has to write. Yeah, I have to like, I had this curse that I need to talk in front of, I need people to hear my every thought, right? And so most people aren't that way though. And so I, it would, I'm doing a disservice to entrepreneurs if I'm telling people where it's not their natural gifting nor their desire to go do something where pound for pound, hour for hour, it is not as effective as the 20 B2B SaaS marketing approaches you know, that yeah. I put in this book. That's, yeah. that's where I fall down. It's, it's, it's the common narrative. It's the same reason I strike out against, there is no always, you should always bootstrap, you should never bootstrap, you should always raise funding, you should never, there is none of that. So I get annoyed with the, oh, you should always build an audience. It's like, no, you shouldn't. You should really know what you're getting into an audience as a tool, know what it takes when you should use it. Yeah. And, and there is also a, a pretty notable difference between like building a massive audience and just having a presence as a founder. Yes. Right. Yep. Because that, that is something I would recommend to everybody. Just having a presence for people to know there's a person. I don't disagree with that. Yep. And Good. Look, so look, look at people who are tweeting. I mean, 
I didn't, let's say Twitter, for example, I didn't build a Twitter audience until the last five years, maybe. Like before that, I had people who followed me, but I never pushed them there. I wasn't tweeting anything that interesting. Um, and I see, I see a lot of folks on Twitter who are not like Ruben Gomez, right? Earthlingworks. You see him on Twitter. He's not building an audience. Yeah, right? he, but, but he is on Twitter and being around and he's learning and, and interjecting. So I, I like that distinction that you're saying, just being, being in public or, you know, building in public can be, even like these days, Derek Reimer is a good mm-hmm. example of this. He mm-hmm. used to, he was building an audience when he had an art of product podcast and he was building in public to the point where he was publishing screencasts and publishing stuff to get people on YouTube and on, on Twitter. And then he hit a point where it just didn't move the needle for him anymore. And it was more time than it was worth. And he's not, I would say, as far as I know from the outside, he's not building an audience anymore, you know? Yeah. But it's certainly, it's, it can be an intentional thing or it could just be a consequence of you just being yourself, yeah. which is like, I think the most authentic thing, right? Yeah. Like you, you, you mentioned, uh, yeah, Derek, I think like Jason Cohen, also an example here. Mm-hmm. And he's just blogging, talking about stuff he's interested in. Mm-hmm. That is building an audience without being like, here are the 10 browser extensions for yeah. whatever, right? You don't need that kind of stuff just to attract people that are genuinely attracted to what you have to offer, what you do because you have insights into something. Yeah. That's the best kind of building in public is the one that is not forced. That's right. And to your point earlier, um, you mentioned in the book that I say building an audience just to find customers for SaaS is just really an uphill battle. Uh, but when you go to hire or when you need to build, when you need to find people who can um, uh, promote you, like uh, let's, say affiliate, let's say I start an affiliate program and I need affiliates who are influencers in this space uh, or I need investors, like that's when an audience suddenly comes in. Like when we started Tiny Seed, the fact that I had an audience was a huge advantage. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it really depends on what you want to do, right? And there might be a point in in the future where it just becomes a necessity because you're adding some new component to your business that yeah. requires that. But it's it's not a starting point for everybody. That's and right. I know, I know a lot of founders and a lot of SaaS uh, developers really like just coders who really don't want to do this, who we just want to go. They're technical people. And they end up being solo founders. That's that's one thing I wanted to ask you too. Like, do you fund solo founders or do you focus on teams? Like, what's your position with that? The majority of companies that we have funded are solo founders. And I mm. think the number, we so State of Independent SaaS survey is and report is a microconf thing we put out uh, every other year right now. And I believe the numbers are one person teams are like what is it 60 or 70 percent of the eco of our kind of ecosystem it's somewhere in there and then one and two person teams combined i think is like 90 so whatever the you know if it's like 70 and 20 you know of one and two something like that it's like 65 25 70 and 20 that's about how the tiny seed uh founders break down wow. you can yeah it's some very similar and uh, just a sliver of three person and and four person teams i find that there's it's actually an anti, a little bit of an anti pattern for me to be bootstrapping a four per founder company like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a little <laughs> yeah. weird. So yeah, that's where venture capital says no. You know, Paul Graham came out and said, "I want two person, three person mm-hmm. teams." Um, we have found. I mean, how many examples do you and I know of single founders who've yep. built incredible multi million dollar businesses? Thousands yep. at this point, tons and tons. Yeah, it's so we crazy. have no bias. If anything, I have no bias. I think one and I'm biased towards one and two person teams. Mm-hmm. To be honest. Yeah, I guess for like a a laser focused business that is solving one particular problem really well, like it's uh, it's the whole thing about cooks, you know, too mm-hmm. many cooks, and that makes perfect sense. So, can you hire too early? Then is that something that exists? Hire too early as a soda founder. Uh, if 
Yeah, it depends on, yeah, you can. I mean, let's say you don't have an, let's say I have $20,000 in the bank and I hire my first day out and I go through all my 20 grand. You hired too early, right? Uh, to be honest, when you're building, finding, I say finding product market fit, like it's some destination. It's not, you and I both know it's a continuum. It's not a binary. So, you know, as you're finding, as you're strengthening product market fit, if you're too early and you hire a salesperson to go sell it and you don't have product market fit, you just churn everybody. Either no one signs up or you just churn everybody out. So yeah, you can hire that too early. But I don't think, I think if you have budget, um, these days, like I would hire for almost from day one, but I it's, it depends on which role you hire, right? It's like, oh, well, I'll hire another, I will hire another developer to accelerate uh, our our. Usually, you need more features to get to product market fit in the early days, and then at a certain point, you kind of hit it and or you know get enough of it that then you need more marketing and sales, and so that's it. Kind of it kind of switches over time. I actually have a matrix of this of like the most common first, second, and third hires of depending on your founding team's makeup. That that among all the other wonderful things in the book is is probably one of the most impactful impactful things you could have put in there because mm -hmm. that is something that I as a solo ish founder never really understood who's going to be the next person or the first person to hire mm -hmm. right should they replace me or should they augment what I do mm -hmm. it's really nice that you looked into this and I think you draw this data or you drew this data from like real companies and their hires as well right that's right yep and I asked. Again, this is where Tiny Seed is an asset for me because I have access to these 130 to 50 companies. And I was able to do my mental model. You know, you're you're like an archaeologist where you're like, all right, here's how I here's been the experience I've had and the experience of of memory from all these founders. And then I went into Slack and actually posted. I said, This is a matrix. Who here followed this? Who here didn't? And do you disagree with, you know, and was it good or bad for you? And do you disagree with any of these? And it was like, so if you're a single founder and you're a developer and you're in low touch sales, usually your first hire is support because it's low touch and there's a vibe, you know, it's that kind of stuff, right? So people were saying, yes, I did it. And in general, I call it like maybe 90% accurate. It's not hundred percent, but it's, it's at least something because before you have this matrix, you're like, I don't know who, you know, I don't know what I should do to your point. Yeah. Just guidance, I'm you know? And if you don't have a mastermind or like a, a group of people like Tiny C that that have this knowledge that just have the experiential insights, yeah. then you, you're just kind of struggling. You're doing random experiments that can cost you and can you know derail you quite quite right. substantially too. Yeah, and hiring's a big one, right? It's so expensive and time consuming. Hiring is also something personally that nobody taught me. <laughs> like that, I, yeah. I get a lot of technical skills. You know, people teach you how to code and all that stuff. But hiring yeah. is like, yeah, okay, just hire people. What does it mean? It right. is hard. This is actually where I've talked about this on my podcast before working a day job and being like being a developer on a team where you're yeah. involved in a hiring process, or if you become a manager or a team lead and you're actually making hiring decisions, invaluable. Like I did that for many years. As much as I hated every single one of my day jobs, <laughs> it did. You can learn skills at your day jobs that will help you as a founder. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. If you know that you will need it eventually, yeah. you probably will look look out for these kind of insights and you will ask people questions, something I didn't do. Because when I was a dev, I was like, ah, I'm just going to be a developer forever, totally. right? Hiring, not for me. I'll learn that later. Yep. Well, I should have asked questions back, yep. back in the day. Absolutely. And, you know, I used to go uh, talk to our marketing. I worked at a, it was a credit card company and I would go talk to the marketing people and just be like, how do we, do we advertise? Like, I didn't know what marketing was. You know, this is, 50, almost 20 years ago. Do we advertise? And they're like, yeah, we do. And I'm like, well, tell me, tell me about that. And I was just trying to learn something. Like at every company you can learn, there's hiring, there's managing, there is getting better uh, you know, at technical side, there's business just operations. Like what is it like to run payroll and do, do your books and marketing and sales and all this stuff is, 
you have to, you know, you have to do it all when you're the founder. The earlier you understand as a founder that you are active, an active generalist and you yeah. cannot just be a specialist in yeah. the thing that you already do, the earlier you'll build this into your routine, right? Yeah. Yeah. You really, if you want to be a specialist, there are rare exceptions. You just have to, you have to limit your growth of your company to do that. And it's possible. And that maybe it's bootstrapping. You're a lifestyle bootstrapper. You can do what you want. But if I'm a developer and I want to keep developing, great. But I am going to hamper the growth of my company. You know, it's just a decision you get to, you get to and, and have to make at a certain point. Well, we all got to learn these things and we got to learn it from amazing people like you. So let me pivot. If people want to follow you on social media and want to see what you're doing, the conferences you run, the podcasts you host, the books you write, and I, I could list more stuff for a couple hours. Always super impressive. Where do you want people to go? I think at Rob Walling on Twitter. Might be the number one. I also have mm -hmm. a podcast called Startups the Rest of Us. And if they're listening to this podcast, they may want to hop over and subscribe to that in any podcatcher that exists. You're going to hit 700 episodes with that in a I couple know. weeks. What How should I do? What should I do? I've already done all the, th you know, at a hundred, we like had people send in audio clips and at 200, we reflected and at three, like we've already done it. What at 600, I did almost nothing. I didn't even say it until the end of the episode. I was like, Hey, by the way, that was 600 here. It just happens to have two zeros at the end. I'll see you in 601. You know, what, is there anything I could do at 700? Oh man, you could do a live show, like with a live audience somewhere. Like we've done that a couple times. Yeah. It's fine. It's not, it's the, those shows don't turn out as good. Like, yeah. have you listened to podcasts where you listen to the live one and you're like, oh, this, yeah. sh this show sucks. It's yeah, not as good right. as a regular. So I, I think we've done two or three. We did them at microconfs mm -hmm. and we recorded them with the live audience. So yeah. I'm going to ixnay that, that idea. Well, I, I guess that's up to the listeners of this episode to send you to follow you on Twitter yep. and give you some kind of idea. Love it. I think that would be nice because that's, that's kind of where your podcast like impacts it, it's the community, right? It's the people in the community that learn from it. Yep. And I bet they want to give back. So, Hey, cool idea. Send it to Rob. Appreciate Thanks it. so much for being on the show and sharing these thousands of insights and nuggets today. That was really, really nice. Thank you so much. Amazing, man. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. And that's it for today. I will now briefly thank my sponsor acquire.com. Now, Rob sold drip and a few other SaaS businesses, which massively impacted his life. First off, Few people ever sell a business. I mean, few people ever build a business to begin with. So if you're starting one or are already running a profitable SaaS, I think it's important to think about the next step, to use Rob's stair-stepping terminology here. Selling my own SaaS certainly changed my life. I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't even be talking to amazing founders and teachers like Rob if I hadn't built a sellable business and then sold it at some point. No matter where you are on your founder journey, I recommend always thinking at least about your eventual sale of the business. You don't have to sell it, obviously, but you can. And Acquire.com is the platform to do that on. They've helped hundreds of founders list, negotiate, and sell their businesses from thousands to millions of dollars in sales prices. They've seen it all, and they can help you sell your SaaS business. Go to try.acquire.com slash Arvid and see if selling your business is the right thing for you right now. It doesn't hurt to be prepared. It doesn't hurt to dream either, because a well-run business is always a more sellable business. So setting it up, getting it right, that is what you want to do. And Acquire.com will help you get to the point where selling is a great choice. 
Thank you for listening to the Bootser Founder today. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You find my books and my Twitter course there too. And if you want to support me and this show, which I would really appreciate, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. That will make a massive difference. Because if you show up there, then the podcast will show up in other people's feeds. That's where I would like it to be. That's how we can help each other learn from people like Rob. Any of this will help the show. So thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye-bye.